been in a series on the sayings of Jesus and took a break last week because of it being Easter. And I hope you had a great Easter weekend celebration. And uh, today we're going to pick it up again, the sayings of Jesus. And our, our uh, passage is going to be from Matthew or from Mark 13. So if you can join me there, we'll uh, begin in verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now let's stop there for just a minute. So uh, Jesus is in his last week before his crucifixion. And um, he's with some disciples. They've gone out of the temple area. And we just need to pause a minute and um, get caught up on the temple. What was the temple like? It was known as one of the wonders of the world of that time period. Um, the stones that were used in, in building it and in giving the undergirding support to it were massive. Uh, just, just for um, reference, uh, I understand that some of the stones were as large as 65 feet long, 9 feet wide, and 7 feet tall. Now think about that. Um, that's a massive stone, and there were many like that that were used for foundational things. And then uh, the, the structure itself was, was beautiful. In the porch area, there were two columns of uh, Corinthian columns, 37 feet high, you know, dozens of these columns. And then um, the facade of the building was gold-plated. It, it was said that when the sun uh, shone on the, the temple, that you could see it from a distance and it, it appeared like it was on fire. It was so brilliant. And so when the disciples went out and said, do you see all these uh, massive stones and, and how beautiful this is? That would have been a natural comment. It would be like us seeing a, a natural beauty or a, a, a man-made uh, structure that is just uh, takes your breath away and making a comment about it. And, and that's what they did. But Jesus took that uh, comment and he he gives them some information and uh, what's their appetite on something that he will teach further about. And he says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's an amazing statement. Um, I could imagine that in a, in a home that has bricks about yay big, but in a building that was Massive like this one was, and uh, just, just a, a word on the length that it took to build this building. It was built by Herod, who wasn't particularly um, a spiritual man. In, in fact, he was not a spiritual man. But he had this thing of, of building buildings and, and hopefully leaving a legacy for himself or of himself. And so he, he was the one that started this whole process. The temple was started in about 20 BC, and now it's, let's say, roughly 30 AD, and the building is still not finished. 
it's, it's been in process for 50 years. And people were watching this um, as, it, as it became more and more complete. There had to have been um, awe and excitement at what was happening in the building of the temple. Well, let's go on and let's begin to read now in, in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, and uh, let's just talk about that. So they left the temple area and they went to the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And it's opposite the temple so they could still see the temple. And uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Let's stop there for just a minute. So uh, when Jesus said, not a single stone is going to be left on another in this temple area, he prompted in their mind uh, thoughts of probably um, overthrow of the Roman government, um, messianic rule on the earth. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And their concept of Messiah was still very much about military um, conquest, about government rule, and all of that. And so when Jesus talked about these stones tumbling down, they're thinking, okay, this has got to be the ushering end of the end, the day of the Lord, the end of the age, that kind of thing. And so they're asking questions about that. I want to just pause for a minute and also say that we call this passage of Scripture and also the corresponding passages in Matthew and Luke, we call it the Olivet Discourse. We call it that because Jesus gave the words on the Mount of Olives, and um, it was a discourse because it was a lengthy passage. It was a lengthy uh, teaching. And uh, so this is the Olivet Discourse. You may have heard of that before. There are two sections, I think, to the Olivet Discourse. In fact, um, probably what's happened over the years is that uh, people have divided themselves into three different camps on the interpretation of this passage. It's a difficult passage. No question about it. There are some things in it that are very difficult to understand. And uh, yet, because Jesus spoke these words, I've, I've felt personally, um, that we need to cover it. Um, it's, it's important what he said. And though it's difficult, we need to read it and we need to understand it as best we can. And so we're going to try to do that today. Um, some people have looked at this passage and because they've seen references to the end of time, to the day of the Lord, to um, you know the end of the age, they feel that the whole chapter deals with the end of the age, that it's all about what's still yet to come for us, um, future to us. There's another group of people that looked at this um, passage of Scripture and saw references in it to things that would happen immediately after Jesus spoke the words, namely the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And their conclusion is that this whole chapter refers uh, exclusively to things that happen at that time. There's another group of people, and I happen to be one of them, who feels that it speaks both 
about things that would happen immediately and about things that would happen yet future to us. And uh, so if we could look at uh, the next slide, I think we have a slide that divides the passage into um, two sections. Basically, section, uh, verses 5 through 23 deals with the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70 under the um, command of the Roman uh, general Titus. And uh, then the second part of the chapter, verses 24 through 37, deal primarily with the return of Christ or the end of the age, the day of the Lord, that kind of thing. Um, there are four themes that you'll pick up on as we go through this passage. You might want to watch for those as we uh, go through chapter 13. The first theme is deception. Jesus talked to, to them about deception, even though they didn't ask that question. He also talked to them about destruction. He talked to them about persecution. And he talked to them about the second coming or the day of the Lord. And so um, let's, with that little bit of background and structure, let's jump into uh, verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. So his question, the question of the disciples was, uh, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And Jesus' next statement didn't really answer that question. He seems to do that uh, fairly frequently, that um, he tells us what we need to know rather than what we want to have explained. And so um, he does eventually get to their questions, but initially he just says, watch out, see that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Okay, so in this first section where Jesus begins to explain, he warns them about two kinds of deception. The first kind of deception he warns them about is deception that comes from um, improperly motivated people. It seems like in tragedy, um, there arise false prophets who seem to want to uh, set themselves up as those who have heard from God, who know what's going to happen and just follow me, listen to me, and I'll tell you what's going on. I can't imagine doing that knowingly, uh, realizing that you have no clue of what's going on and you're just gaining a following and, and you're hoping for the best about the end. But there, there are people that perhaps believe that they somehow have heard from God and they were, um, they were prevalent during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. If you read uh, Josephus and, and some of the other early historians, um, there were a number of prophets who told people things that they wanted to hear, like God is going to deliver Jerusalem out of the hand of the Romans. And uh, the, the thing they were counseling was for everybody to come to the city 
and uh, pack into the city because God is going to rescue the city. Come to the temple and it will be told you how the nation is going to be saved. These were total lies. They were not from God. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't bite the bait of deceptive prophecies. The second thing he was telling them, and uh, perhaps we could go back to, um, oh, let's go back to verse 7. Um, he was saying that when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. One more verse, verse 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. One early historian uh, writes in his history of this time period about the world at that time. And it, it was like reading the words of Jesus, although this, was, this person was not a follower of Jesus. But he was describing a world that was in chaos. There was a lot of unrest politically and, and internationally. And there were um, things like earthquakes in various places. And, and so... Um, down through the ages, down through the, the years uh, since Christ wrote these words, those things have been prevalent. And the deception that could come to us is to think that because these things are happening, the end must be near. And Jesus is saying that also is a deception. These things have to come, and, um, but that doesn't mean that the end is near. Okay. Let's go to uh, verse 9. He says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there. So um, we're talking here about the general theme of persecution. And Jesus is saying there's going to be persecution coming. Um, there, there was persecution that came uh, immediately after Jesus spoke these words. He warned his disciples even before this, that they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. He had talked about some of these things already and would talk further about them, particularly on, um, on the night before he was crucified. And so uh, the theme of persecution is one that Jesus has not hidden from the disciples. He's made that plain that he would be persecuted and they would be persecuted couple of things to notice and if we could go back and we'll just work through our this section verse by verse he said you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues the persecution religiously because they're not towing the Jewish line would happen and it did happen it happened to Jesus and would happen just just in a few days and then he said, on account of me, you will also stand before governors and kings. What's that? As witnesses to them. 
as witnesses to them. So let's go on and read verse 10. And the gospel must, be, must first be preached to all nations. Some people have taken this as a chronological statement. And um, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at this statement is that it's a priority statement. That the gospel must first, as priority, be preached to all nations. Jesus is not trying to give a clue about um, the end of the age so people could figure out a date or figure out um, an approximate time. He's telling them that the priority of preaching the gospel is there. That's the priority. Preach the gospel. And uh, so when they're delivered to these councils and synagogues and they stand before kings, uh, what's happening then is that um, they will be witnesses. And let's, let's read 11. It's interesting. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, these times before governors and kings are evangelistic events. They're not so much about you um, giving some great defense of yourself. No, it's going to be a time of you witnessing for me. And, you know, we see that happening right after the um, uh, day of Pentecost. Stephen is, is mighty in word, and he's preaching, and, and people are, are being saved, and, and yet those that opposed him were angry with him, and they brought him before the council. And as he's brought before the council, what does he do? Does he try to defend himself? No. He preaches the gospel, and it's a powerful message. You should read it sometime in Acts chapter 7, and... Uh, so he preaches the gospel. And that's, that's a pattern for what would happen throughout the book of Acts, particularly as Paul is on trial before kings and governors. He's not so much defending himself as he is preaching the gospel to these kings. This is a way, and Jesus predicts it ahead of time, for the gospel to be preached even to those in authority. And uh, an amazing prediction. Well, let's go on. Let's go on to verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and father and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. And as uh, we consult history, that happened. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, what does he mean by the end. Probably what he means here is something that we wouldn't have imagined. He's saying the one who stands firm in their faith to the end of their life will be saved. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying stand firm while, you be, while you're on trial and you'll be saved from the punishment. No, he's saying you'll be saved eternally if you stand firm to the end of your life. He's not primarily about getting people out of their persecution. 
He's about helping them through it and helping them to stand strong in their times of persecution. That's a hard thing to hear, I know. And, uh, but Jesus will reinforce that as we continue on in this, in this uh, wonderful chapter. Okay, let's go on to verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Let's, let's stop at this point, and I'd like for us to go back to verse 14, and we'll, we'll work our way through these verses. The abomination that causes desolation is a phrase that is uh, rooted in Daniel. In fact, if you look at Daniel 11.31, you'll see this phrase. And uh, most Bible scholars feel that the references in Daniel referred um, ahead of time to what would happen um, when Antiochus Epiphanes came in to Jerusalem and created a desolation in the temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar, by possibly erecting a statue, a statue to some Greek god in the temple. And um, those things happen. We, we can read about them in history. But they also have, now Jesus is using that same term for something that will yet happen future. What's he talking about? He's probably talking about something that would happen during the time when Jerusalem was under siege or was being destroyed. Interestingly enough, and this is something that we can't see in in the English translation, but in uh, the Greek, um, there's there's an interesting change on the word it. When you see the abomination that causes causes desolation standing where it does not belong. It would be a a neuter um, gender. But in the Greek, it's masculine. So it should really say, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where he does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay. Probably what it's a reference to is that there, there will be some person who will come into the temple area and, and his presence in that temple area will be a signal to those people that have heard this, this warning from Jesus to leave and to get out of J- Jerusalem, to get out of Judea and flee to the mountains. The reason that this would not refer to the end of time Uh, let's say, you know, at the coming of Christ, is uh, what would be the point of fleeing to the mountains if Christ is coming back? Um, if If he's on the verge and he's coming back, there would be no point in fleeing to the mountains. So, uh, this was a warning to people who, um, 
would be going through this, when they saw something that had the ring of what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem. And every Jew would have had uh, memory, not of seeing it so much, but of hearing the stories. And uh, they would understand that um, that's what is being referred to. And at that point, they need to flee to the mountains. Let's read verse 15. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. In other words, when you see this thing happening, get out of town immediately. Don't don't worry about your possessions. Save your life. Leave town. Let's keep reading. 16. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Don't go back to the house to get anything. If you see or hear about this thing and you're in the field, get out of town. Verse 17, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. And Jesus is is, um, expressing his own compassion at at the, the difficulty for them because they won't be quite as mobile as other people. Verse 18, Pray that this will not take place in winter because it will be difficult. The roads will be muddy. Uh, We need to think of more of rain rather than snow like we might think of here. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So uh, let's talk about that for just a minute. What happened in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And by the way, uh, that was an awful time. The Roman armies, um, the Jews had became, uh, had become odious to the Romans. They were um, rebellious and Rome was sick and tired of them. And um, they sent the army, the Roman army under Titus. And he came and he laid siege to Jerusalem. And I don't know if you've ever read accounts of cities that have been under siege in ancient warfare, but it's awful. No one can come or go. Um, Often the the water is blocked from the city. Um, And that happened. The, uh, the, The awfulness of this siege at this time was incredible. You can read some of the the accounts of that in Josephus and other early historians. Um, Cannibalism was common and um, just an awful time. And yet, the Jews, there were prophets that were speaking to them and saying, you need to come into Jerusalem. God's going to spare this city. He's going to come back. The Messiah is going to come and deliver us from the Romans. That was exactly the opposite of what Jesus told his followers. And uh, we do have a a historical account of um, from Eusebius who tells of a group of believers who followed the teaching of Jesus. They left Jerusalem, they left Judea, they crossed the Jordan River and they went to a city called Pella on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And during this whole time of siege and and, uh, destruction that was going on in Judea and Jerusalem, they were spared. 
because they had followed the instructions of Jesus. We sometimes um, want to do what we think should happen. And uh, to a Jew uh, who believed in the Messiah, their thoughts were the Messiah should come and rescue us. And this would be the perfect time for him to do it. Jesus is saying that's not going to happen. And there's a very good reason. The reason that this was a time of destruction, it wasn't just that the Jews happened to get caught by the Romans. This was God's doing. This was God's destruction. Every bit as much as it was when Jerusalem was taken by the Babylonians um, five, six hundred years before. This was a time of judgment because the people had become corrupt. Religion had become corrupt. You remember when Jesus came into the temple and said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's what had happened to Jewish faith. It had become corrupt. The high priest was given to the highest bidder that position. And it was a, a corrupt system. And they had totally rejected God's gift to them, the Messiah. And Jesus in his parables had predicted that this thing would happen, that God would become um, angry and that he would punish them for their rejection of him and for killing their son. And so Jesus is describing what will happen and the destruction of Jerusalem that did happen was not a mistake. It was not just a political event. It was God intervening and uh, intervening in judgment in the affairs of men. Well, we have more to, uh, to cover in this chapter, but we don't have time today. So what I'd like for us to do is to um, pray and, and we'll commit this that we've studied today to God. And then uh, next week, we'll pick up from where we left off in uh, verse 20 and we'll continue to the end of the chapter. I want to encourage you to think about uh, some of the themes that we've talked about thus far. Um, we've certainly had the theme of deception, and Jesus warns against deception. It comes from improperly motivated people who claim to know God and know his will. And Jesus says, do not be, do not be um, swayed by what they say. And then he says, don't be swayed by world events and natural disasters, as though that's an immediate sign of, of the end of time. Um, we've all heard stories of people who have gone uh, up on a mountaintop somewhere and they're convinced that God is coming back on such and such a date and they've sold everything and Jesus didn't come back on that date because uh, he's made it clear that no one is gonna know that day or hour. And uh, we need to not be um, deceived by world events and by natural disasters as though that were an immediate sign of the Lord's return. And then uh, the whole theme of persecution. Jesus has made it clear that um, he's not primarily 
going to deliver us from persecution, but he's going to give us strength to stand strong in persecution and to be his witnesses in times of persecution. Now that's a, a message that is hard sometimes to receive, but uh, we'll see more of that in chapter 13 next week, and I want you just to be thinking about that. And uh, so we've had uh, destruction, we've had deception, and we've had persecution. And we'll talk, especially next week, more about the return of Christ. But would you join me in prayer? Thank you, Lord, for this time of study. And I pray that you will just take these thoughts that we've talked about today and that you'll use them in a strong and powerful way in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.